What does rule of law mean? What does order mean? What does it mean for people to follow rules? We've been following rules for hundreds of years and still get the short end of the stick. Hi, from The Griot, I'm your co-host, Dr. Christina Greer, and today we have a guest co-host. I'm Ibrahim Abdul-Mateen. I'm the author of Green Dean, What Islam Teaches About Protecting the Planet, and you're listening to What's In It For Us. Oh, Ibrahim, I'm so happy to have my dear friend here. So today we have a lot to talk about. Your president, your former president, is being impeached for the second time. And is the Senate totally useless? Also, Joe Biden has a new environmental platform, and I want to know what it means for the larger environmental justice movement. And lastly, is the vaccine getting into enough Black arms? So what are the community efforts and the proper outreach that we should be doing to make sure we get this under control? What do you think? Who's the president again? What's he doing? Impeachment? What does that even mean? Where does that even come from? There's so many questions here that are plaguing me. I don't even get really what's happening. I do want to know who the hell is going to vote yes or no. And I'm really curious about that. When it comes to the environmental agenda, guess what? There's going to be finally professionals running critical agencies like the EPA and Department of Energy. That's a big deal. And then finally, I would say, can we figure out this vaccine thing already? Can people just come to people's doors and figure this out and make it happen? That's what we need to be talking about. And as always, the larger question is what's in it for us? Okay, so Ibrahim, I want to start with our first hot topic, which is Black quarterbacks. So if my memory serves me correctly, since we've been friends for almost 30 years, you played football in college. But when I was growing up, we had our sports teams and I grew up in Philly. So that was like during the Randall Cunningham days. But in my family, if a team had a Black quarterback or a Black coach, that sort of superseded everything else. So in 2020, we have 10 Black quarterbacks that started for the now 32 NFL teams in their respective first games. So we have quarterbacks there, obviously Patrick Mahomes wasn't able to bring it home for the Super Bowl. But why is it so important that we have Black quarterbacks in the NFL? For those of us who are actually even still watching the NFL due to what they've done to Colin Kaepernick and the fact that he still doesn't have a job. One of the basic things here is this. If you are a talented athlete and you play football, you are usually slotted into a certain direction, whether you're a big guy or a fast guy or athletic guy. The, the cerebral sort of intellectual guy was usually put into the quarterback role. The Assumption is that the black player might be the fastest, might throw the ball the best, but they weren't really that smart. I was even told once when I played football, one of my coaches actually said to the newspaper, he said, Eve is a natural talent, but he doesn't really know the plays. And that still to this day stings me. And that's the sort of mark that exists for lots of players. But now we've transcended all that. People just want to win. Let's just be real talk. And if you have these players that are playing, these quarterbacks that are playing at the highest level right now in the NFL, these guys can flat out play. And it doesn't even matter. These coaches that have now transitioned from being players like Todd Bowles and these other folks who was on Tampa Bay, the defensive coordinator, who essentially was the MVP of the Super Bowl the other day. Mm-hmm. You have all this talent. Just let the people play. What it boils down to is that let's get the best players on the field and let's see the best product of football, not let's segment them and see who we think should be in certain spots. No, let's just see the best football you could possibly see. Well, is that the case? Because even someone like Lamar Jackson, who's coming out the box for the Ravens, one of my favorite teams, they were even trying to shuttle him away from the quarterback position. So I think my beef is that there's so much talent that we don't even know about because when folks come into the NFL from quarterback positions in college, they're not even given the opportunity to try out to be quarterbacks in the NFL level. So if Lamar Jackson was able to keep that spot, I feel like this idea of winning still has this racial element to it because we have so few examples, realistically by and large, of black quarterbacks in the NFL. And the Super Bowl that you just saw was on display, the great white hope Tom Brady at the helm showing that, listen, 
we still got it. This old guy that still can prove that he's so good and he's so intelligent. And he's the greatest of all time. That's all crap to me. He's a great player, yes. But you put him up against other players and competing against other players earlier in his career that were maybe told they had to play another position. You may not even see a Tom Brady. I think also the piece that disturbs me is that we know that different positions make different amounts of money. So if you're also shuttling black players away from the quarterback position, we know you're also messing with their money. And that's what I have a huge problem with, especially beyond the intellectual piece that you've talked about, because Warren Moon has talked about it. Lots of former black quarterbacks, Randall Cunningham talked about it. This idea that there's a lacking of black intellect to be in the position, but there's also an economic repercussion to shuttling black players away from it. I just want to bring us back to the Doug Williams. When Doug Williams was the quarterback for the Washington football team, formerly known as the Redskins, that third quarter of the game when he went in the Super Bowl, he won that game. He was the hero and probably was the greatest of any quarterback in Super Bowl history. You could arguably call him the greatest of all time because football is a sport where you play one game. You don't get a seven game or a five game series. You got one chance to win. You put teams against each other for five or six games, you're going to get the best team to win, the most talented team to win. But you get one chance. And that's what Doug Williams had that one chance in that one third quarter. But because he had a rocky road to get there and then a rocky road after that, he probably doesn't have the financial success as someone like Tom Brady who made millions of dollars and also, by the way, got a PPP loan for his failing business and is not going to get that back and he's probably going to get a bonus from the Super Bowl. That's a great point. There's a lot of money on the table that probably needs to go back. Yeah, I just think about people like Michael Vick, people like Donovan McNabb. We know them, but I don't feel like they're in like the pantheon of the Mount Rushmore of NFL quarterback excellence in the way that they should be spoken about in a larger context. And think about someone like Warren Moon. Warren Moon said, if it was racism then, then they, meaning Black players, wouldn't be allowed to play the game at all. This is what he told CNN. He says, but then, and this is a quote, but the stereotype was that we can only play certain positions. And I think we still see that quite a bit. But then he goes on to say, and the quarterback position was the position that a lot of people didn't think we could play for different reasons, whether it was the leadership, whether it was being able to think, being able to make critical decisions at critical times, be the face of a franchise, all those different things that go along with being a franchise quarterback. And I think that last part about being the face of a franchise, we still have to grapple with the fact that these NFL teams struggle with having black quarterbacks, even though their jerseys sell out, even though Colin Kaepernick's still one of the number one selling jerseys and he hasn't played in what, five years? But even black quarterbacks like Lamar Jackson, his jersey's one of the number one selling jerseys. So this idea that we can't carry a team is clearly false in economic terms, yet and still we don't see the numbers and we still keep seeing black people shuttled away from the position or not respected fully once they're in the position. I bet the players respect them. When you go into a huddle and the quarterback comes into the huddle and they command respect, you command respect by a couple of things, how you play and how you perform. And that was actually one of the problems at RG3, Robert Griffin III, who played again for the Washington football team and who had an incredible college career, came out, was going to save the Redskins franchise, but really got injured and didn't. But a quarterback exudes confidence. And not only do that, they instill excitement and energy into their team. And I think it's a metaphor for us as a people in many ways in this country. You have to be extra good, extra amazing. You have to be the moral exemplar of every good, positive thing. So Barack Obama becomes president of the United States. He has no moral stain on his record. The only thing he might do sometimes is he smokes cigarettes. There's nothing shady about him, but still they attack him, attack him, attack him. And you have all these yahoos and other people that come through that they can do all sorts of shady stuff and then they get a pass. So I think on the field and amongst the people that are their peers, these players, all the folks that you referenced, they want those guys walking into that huddle with them. They wanted Michael Vick. They want Lamar Jackson. They wanted Randall Cunningham when it mattered the most. They wanted those players. And I think that at the end of the day, you're going to see more as you start to see more black coaches, you're going to start to see more black quarterbacks. Well, I think the issue is that pipeline is clogged. I don't know what when it comes to the black coaches. So 
also used to write about some sports back in the day, used to, you know, <laughs> you're pretty active in the sports world. And so I want to shift over to the NBA. We know that they had this infamous bubble. They played and they had a very successful season and Adam Silver was not playing with the money at all. But now we got into this point where it's NBA All-Star Weekend. We know it generates a lot of money for the cities that hold it. And LeBron James and Giannis and James Harden and Kawhi Leonard, they're all like, listen, I don't want this to happen. LeBron says, I have zero energy and zero excitement about an All-Star game this year. He's essentially saying he'll begrudgingly play, but coronavirus is still real and they're no longer in a bubble. So what do you think about that? I mean, they are technically under contract. We know that they are players and owners. That language is deliberate. But how are you feeling about the All-Star game? Well, obviously, I don't think it should happen, especially if the players don't want to do it, then it shouldn't happen. But I think what's really incredible here is that it just really points to how powerful the NBA players are in the scope of their relationship to the management and ownership of NBA teams. There's less players in the NBA as opposed to like the NFL, which has, excuse the term, sort of a plantation feel. The NBA, and that's going to get people really all riled up, but the NBA is much more of a close-knit community and more of a family. And LeBron James is really the face of the NBA in many ways. And I think that their power to dictate to management, this is really a labor conversation. Mm -hmm. And that's how I think it should be framed. Is labor in charge, in control? Do they have a sense of ownership of the league? And then do players, and not only the players, but do the fans respect that? Are they going to say, oh, we don't like LeBron now? No. Most fans, including people who don't look like LeBron, are going to say, okay, we support that. Now, the flip side of this, obviously, is that Atlanta doesn't get the infusion of dollars that an All-Star Weekend then gets. Now, the other side of that is that we are in a pandemic. Does it need the infusion? Or maybe they can work out some other thing. And that's where I think it would be intriguing to me if the players got together and figured out another way to work with the local folks in Atlanta to infuse some dollars that are needed to make sure that people get some support and some help. Maybe there should be some like NBA PPP loans just to Black-owned businesses in Atlanta. And I think that would be a really incredible outcome of this. I think you make a really important point. As someone who studies urban politics and cities in particular, we're looking at a chocolate city mm -hmm. with a Black mayor. We know the struggles that Black mayors have because they are responsible for the economic vitality of a city in ways that white mayors just honestly aren't held to the same standard. So making sure that those businesses are protected because there's an infusion of cash that comes in whenever we're talking about weekends like this. But also we are in the middle of a global pandemic and we know folks are going to be out at the club. We know folks are going to be at restaurants. And we also know that Black people are disproportionately affected by the coronavirus. So are we inviting danger literally by inviting thousands of people to come to the city of Atlanta to revel in a basketball game, which could have rippling effects for our health for not just weeks and months, but quite honestly, generations when we think about the number of Black people who are actually dying. Here's the flip though too. Is the game going to actually even be that good? You see a lot of these players throughout the league that choose, that do minutes restrictions. They take time off essentially. They'll pretend like they're sick or they're injured and they're basically just taking time off. LeBron does it all the time. And LeBron was quoted as saying that he wanted that break. He was looking forward to that. And LeBron's a grown man. He wants to be with his family. So I think this particular moment right now, if your top players in the league are saying, give us a break, maybe give them an extra break. And that also brings into the conversation, are they extracting so much money and so much time out of these athletes that maybe the season is too long? Maybe you start to rethink that whole thing. And I think that might be one of the interesting parts about this. They're going to start to have different conversations about the All-Star break in general, about the length of the season in general. And the outcome, forgive me, I'm blanking on her name, but the head of the NBA Players Association, a Black woman, they're going to really use this as leverage. If they end up having to do and conduct this game, A, the game's not going to be as good, but then they're going to end up using this as leverage for negotiations going forward. You bring up this really important idea of these are labor conversations and we oftentimes don't think about sports and labor in the same context. But I'm also fascinated by, you mentioned LeBron is essentially the face of the franchise. Now he's not the head of the players union, but he is in many ways the international face. 
the franchise. I wonder how this conversation would be different if, say, a Charles Barkley or a Michael Jordan or these more conservative-leaning or apolitical-leaning cats were the face of the NBA because it seems as though they'd be on the side of the owners and not necessarily the players when it comes to health and emotional wealth and well-being. Well, then the real question at that point is, what is Michael Jordan's take on this issue right now? Because he is an owner now. So that, to me, is something to keep track of. If you're tracking this story and trying to figure out what's going to happen with the NBA, is Jordan saying, is he back in LeBron, who has a claim to basically being the new greatest of all time? And by the way, the term greatest of all time is a term that was started by Muhammad Ali. He was the original greatest of all time. And he actually created the term greatest of all time. So people need to stop that whole conversation about anybody else being the greatest of all time. But I think that to me is going to be intriguing to see where Michael Jordan lands on all this now as an owner. Well, and as always, as we think about the NFL, the NBA, the cities that host them and the people that watch them, we always have to remember, think about what's in it for us. Okay, so Ibrahim, I want to get your take on the impeachment of your 45th president. So we know that Donald Trump goes down in the history books for being impeached, not just once, but twice. But as we know, it's the House that brings impeachment charges, the House of Representatives, and it's the Senate that is in charge of reprimanding any sort of prosecutorial action that's taken. We know that when Donald Trump was impeached the first time, it was a democratically controlled House and they chose to impeach. And the Republican controlled Senate said, obviously not, throw this away. So there were no repercussions, Donald Trump. Now Donald Trump is out of office. We have a democratically controlled House. We have a democratically controlled Senate. The House will most definitely keep these impeachment charges and say that Donald Trump has aided and abetted insurrectionists and domestic terrorists. But even though the Senate is a slim, slim, slim majority democratically, they would need 17 Republicans to vote yes to prosecute Donald Trump. They would also need all Democrats to also vote yes. And that is an assumption that many people are making that all Democrats will vote yes. Most likely, but it's not guaranteed. And so Donald Trump has not gotten legitimate lawyers. He can't seem to find any because no one really wants to have that stench on them. But the Senate is somewhat useless because it's pretty apparent that he's not going to get 17 senators to side with Democrats to say, yes, there needs to be some real punishment. And whether or not that punishment is making sure he never gets intel briefings, making sure he can never run for office again, whatever the punishment may be, especially as he threatens to run in 2024. But how are you feeling about the impeachment trial that's going on? Do you feel like it's just political theater or is this a necessary step that we must do as a democracy to show other Americans and the world this cannot be tolerated? Even if Donald Trump's not prosecuted, we still need to go through the process yeah. such that no one else moving forward who's smarter, more educated, and has a better legal team can think that they did what Donald Trump did. I think what's fascinating about the whole notion of the impeachment process is that the framers of the Constitution put this term high crimes and misdemeanors. Everyone debates what the term high crimes and misdemeanors is, and that becomes like this gray area that we start to dance around and try and figure out. To me, the gray area is actually useful because it puts onus on context in the present moment. So then it says to whoever the American people are at that point in time that this is what you define as high crime and misdemeanor. So now what I think is actually on trial is, is white supremacy acceptable? Is it something that we as a government, as a community of people think is okay? So for example, you have all of these elected officials that are going to have to be on the record at the highest level. You're going to have all this evidence displayed and presented. So that to me 
in and of itself is important. I don't expect him to be impeached. What I expect is that we are going to find out where these senators are. Well, hold on. Impeach or prosecute it? Because I expect him to be impeached by the House, for sure. Yes, yes, I agree with you that. You don't expect him to be impeached by the House? Okay. No, no, I do expect that, but I don't think he's going to get prosecuted. And I think the challenge there is everyone having to make a public statement. There are consequences to actions. That's what I mean about white supremacy being on trial. So that you think you can just essentially start a coup or incite people to do a riot to attack the government where you live in, and you can just walk away and say, oh, I didn't mean to say that. That doesn't work in the real world. And so even if he doesn't get taken off in chains or go to jail, like some people would like him to be, although some attorney generals across the country have other ideas about that, but even if that doesn't happen to him, everyone has to be on record publicly about where they stand and what they think his actions were involved in this riot in the Capitol. But it also extends from Bjork before that. There's a cacophony of voices throughout history of his presidency that led up to this moment. We know that he probably supported it and was rooting them on. But bottom line is this, everything's going to be put out there. This whole evidence that relates to people on the inside being involved or people that were on the Trump team that knew about what was happening, that to me is relevant to be put into the public sphere. And I want to know that. Well, I think what's so fascinating is that I'm so curious as what the votes would be if they were secret ballot. Because right now, and I think it's fine that they're on display because we should know how various representatives and senators feel about this and their public statements that will be submitted into the public record. But I'm so curious because we've seen such lily-livered, jello-spined Republicans over the past four years, dare I say 25 years, even going back to the Reagan administration, even before the 25 years. I'm so curious as to if they were able to vote in a secret ballot, if some of them would actually uphold their constitutional duty and put the American people ahead of someone that quite honestly, it seems as though they're afraid of because they want power and they know that Donald Trump still wields quite a bit of it. As much as I may not ideologically agree with someone like Rand Paul, I do think of some of the people as having a little bit more integrity just from their own ideological perspective. You'll see, and this is important for Black people to see, is like, who is an ideological person and who is someone that's obsessed with power? And that's where the line is also going to be. The people that are mindful of power, like to your point, they're going to be worried about their relationship to the base or whatever base that still supports Donald Trump. They're going to waver to them. The people that might have an ideological bone in their backbone, like maybe Mitt Romney, that have some idea about the process or the structure or the functioning of government, they might think that no person is above the law. No person is bigger than the structure. Now, you can argue that lots of different ways on either side of that, but this is a moment. Every single moment is an opportunity in the present time to hold true to your ideas. Are these people opportunists or do they have something that is core inside of some core values that they believe in that relate to their role? And will they actually stand for that? I think that they're all just kind of lame. That's unfortunate and that's sad. Every time I hear them speaking, all I think about is Hamlet and Shakespeare. And it's like when Polonius asks him, what are you reading? It's like words, words, words. We constantly see Republicans on the Senate floor. And so for the official record, they say things that are sort of, we must respect American values and uphold constitutional decency, etc. They say one thing, Mitch McConnell being the star. And then when it comes time to vote, they actually do the opposite. So it's kind of like in a judicial world where you've got the vote and the opinion, and sometimes they don't actually match up. And it's like, what are you actually talking about? And so when we think about someone like Donald Trump, who has zero respect for the office that he held for four years or the actual constitution, he's not even respecting Representative Jamie Raskin, who's the impeachment manager. He requested that Trump come and speak under oath to give him an opportunity to contextualize January 6th and the insurrection, just because this is the basis of the impeachment. And Donald Trump's like, no, I'm not coming. If I were his lawyer, I think that's the smartest thing because it is illegal to lie under oath. And we know that Donald Trump lies as easily as he breathes. I don't think that he knows how not to. I think it just comes way too naturally. 
for him. But we have these senators, Republican senators, who have shown us time and time again where they will say all the things that you just laid out. But when it comes time to do the right thing for the American people, they're sorely lacking. And what we're going to get is a reminder. January 6th was really a shock to a lot of people. There's a lot of Republican, Black Republican members of my family and of many of our families that were probably were hesitant and maybe didn't even vote for Trump in that time. But I think that that was the nail in the coffin of any of their support for that version of Republican politics. Base level, people believe in some semblance of order and rule of law, even if there's a lot of flaws with that. Black people, we have stood up time and time again to uphold that framework, that approach. To me, it's going to be just this blatant and obvious reminder that maybe some of the myths that went into creating this American story, maybe they're just myths. Maybe they're just stories. This is a moment where we need to recreate an understanding of what does rule of law mean? What does order mean? What does it mean for people to follow rules? We've been following rules for hundreds of years and still get the short end of the stick. I think that is going to truly be out there, a reminder and a slap in the face of how egregious what happened on January 6th was. I definitely agree because in so many ways, Black people are the original patriots of this country. We're the ones who fight for the democratic ideals more so than anyone else. But America has never reckoned with her past. And so in every single instance, we try and move on. It's like, well, that was that. It was terrible. But like, stop talking about the past, Ibrahim. We'll never get moving forward if you always want to talk about chattel slavery or you want to talk about how we treated immigrants. We want to talk about how we treated Muslims or the Chinese Exclusion Act. And so the list goes on. Native American genocide. All these centuries and decades long abuses and traumas that we've inflicted on groups of people, there seems to not ever want to be a reckoning. And January 6th was just the 21st century version of it in very clear terms. And I'm not surprised. I'm just inherently frustrated at the willingness and the eagerness and almost the necessity to move past that moment, that day, that visual that so many of us saw in such a visceral way in such a black city in Washington, D.C. to say, okay, well, by the end of the day, it's like business as usual. Let's take this vote. And that happened. So in the morning, we had Georgia. We had Stacey Abrams celebration. It's all blue peaches everywhere. We've got Ossoff and Warnock. And then in the afternoon, we've got literally swastikas and Confederate flags. And then by the evening, it's like, okay, kids, well, that was a lot, but we're going to just move on. And we keep doing this as a nation and never actually having this moment of reckoning. And I think that's what worries me about the impeachment trial and our lack of confronting the reality of what this nation has been and what she still is. We need that reminder because we are extremely forgiving. We carry jazz and, okay, cool, we'll come up with something next. We create hip hop and was like, oh, we love this. We'll come up with something else. We're like the coolest people on the planet. Let's just be honest about it. Everybody's sweating our stuff. And so at some level, we have to take a step back, look back and say, actually, we're not going to forget that. That's not right. That doesn't work for us. And if we had been that angry, we would have had a go-go band out there making music. It would have been a different vibe. We would have been like, we're angry about this and we're going to do this. We're going to make some noise. We wouldn't have been storming the thing and smashing windows and killing people. That's just the bottom. That's not how we roll. And I think we do need that reminder. So moving to our next topic, because the reminder of the world is currently on fire. I'm so glad I'm here to be able to discuss it with you because you are the author of Green Dean, What Islam Teaches About Protecting the Planet. So I wanted to get your thoughts on Joe Biden and his environmental protection policies, but also how he views the environmental justice movement, because I feel like you're the premier expert about what environmental justice means specifically for Black people. And we know that the last four years with that administration that did not care about Black people and did not care about the environment was incredibly detrimental to a lot of communities, large and small. So where are we right now? And are you feeling hopeful about Joe Biden in this position to move us forward in an environmental justice space? And for our listeners, can you just remind them and frame for them what the environmental justice movement is? The frame or the term environmental justice comes out of a 
previous term that was a little more specific, which was environmental racism. And that was an observation of what was happening across the country and across the globe, where the most polluting facilities like power plants and waste facilities were usually located next to Black people and other folks of color around the country and around the globe. For example, there's Cancer Alley, I think, in between Louisiana and Texas, where if you're going from New Orleans to Houston, there's like flames and oil refineries along the entire way. There's some elementary schools in that corridor that don't even have windows in their building, in their school for like kindergartners, because there's so much noxious fumes that are coming around them that they can't even have that. The idea that you could live in the richest country in the world and some parts of Alabama and to Senators Tim Scott district where black people don't even have actual sewage or plumbing in their houses. So they walk out of their house into raw sewage. The idea that some people still exist within a context where they are surrounded by pollution, surrounded by contaminants, surrounded by things that will exacerbate health problems, actually make them sick and actually be cancerous is shocking. So the frame environmental racism describes that problem. And it came out of the black church in North Carolina, making an observation that that was an issue. Environmental justice is an aspirational idea that we should move to rebalance that, to fix that problem. And what I think the Biden administration has done, first of all, the Trump administration didn't hire people. We talk about attrition when people reach retirement age and then they just retire and then no one fills that spot. So what Trump administration did is they let these agencies, federal agencies, hollow out, empty with people, which means that important work is not being done. So there's a thing called a super fund where places that are so toxic and so dangerous for people, you need billions of dollars to clean it up. You need the Environmental Protection Agency to order big companies to clean it up. They're called responsible parties. You need them. And that's the power of the federal government in this context. They can order people to make changes and to redress wrong and improve wrongs or make wrongs right. So what the Biden administration did baseline fundamentally is hire professionals back to the EPA. That's the first step. And the first person that they hired to signal that they get it was Michael Regan, who held a similar position in North Carolina. So that's a huge first step. What are your thoughts on the Green New Deal and Biden's approach trying to eliminate coal and thinking about oil and natural gas as electricity sources by 2035 as a boon to the workforce and a way to create wealth within certain communities? The question really is, how do we solve these problems? How do we get electricity? How do we manage our waste stream? How do we deal with these problems? And how do we find opportunity within solving those problems? So I think what Biden's team is recognizing, so you have a professional like Michael Reagan, who is running the EPA, making sure it's run well. You also have people like John Kerry, who can interact at the international level and have those relationships and develop those relationships and making sure that we're in good concert with folks internationally. You also have young people like Ali Zaidi, the young policy advisor who came on, who helped work with the environmental justice community to help get some really good work done in New York State and really trying to figure out a way to translate some of those environmental justice principles to how we move going forward. And what that means for folks in our communities is that there's an opportunity there. We are going to clean up the messes that we made in the last economy. The reality is that we can do things better than we've ever done before. So Biden's trying to chart out a roadmap to do that. He's not the guy to do that. And that's one of the things I actually appreciate. He's this old guy from Delaware who just wants to watch football and hang out with his dogs. But he also recognizes that for him to do that, for his grandkids to do that, we need to have a much better roadmap for a cleaner economy. I think that we have a team in place of people. And then there's pressure. There's always going to be pressure. And that's where folks need to come in and make sure that they push for that. But also we need to think about where's their opportunity for all of us to try and figure out not just opportunity, like actual business opportunities. And there are those things within this new economy. As the old polluting industries phase out, there's going to be opportunity for us to step in and take advantage of this new opportunity, but we have to be aware of it and step in now. Democrats have been saying that for a long time. Like, we have an opportunity to create new pathways in the economic sphere, but we're constantly met with Republican obstinance. And so I'm thinking about Patrick Morrissey from West Virginia. 
Virginia, the Republican attorney general. And he says Biden's policies will be destructive to the economy. And then basically the Biden administration is taking a wrecking ball to states to have oil and gas and coal manufacturing jobs. And it's this detrimental impact for the American economy. And we're in the middle of a pandemic. So how do we balance out Democrats constantly saying, well, if we have new energy sources, it'll create money and jobs and help the economy with Republicans, A, who are going to try and block policy. But they're essentially saying, no, because we're going to lose jobs because of the coal and the gas industries and getting rid of those, our reliance on those industries. The reality is that coal was already being phased out, not by human beings, but by market forces. It's not a viable energy source anyway. So everybody across the globe recognizes that coal is not a good way to get energy. And so that's a false argument. And people try and raise that flag. They're trying to squeeze the last bit of dollars out of that industry. And they may very well do that, but it's just not the future. When it comes to other things, what they did is that by saying that they're against the pipeline for natural gas, you signal also that you have to choose other sources and other ways to get electricity. Kind of like you're dating somebody and then you meet someone new. Do you want to keep dating that old person sometimes and then you meet the new person? No, you got to end the old thing to start the new. You can't just keep dating two people at the same time. (laughs) You're not going to fully be there. So I think they're starting to do is that they're signaling that they're moving in a different direction. And one thing I'll say about natural gas, natural gas is a big problem because it also pollutes our water supplies when they do hydrofracking. And talk to people that live in those areas. Talk to folks in Pennsylvania and West Virginia and other places where their entire natural area is being ripped apart by all these companies that come in and take stuff out of the ground and then they leave. They don't leave money there. They don't leave jobs there. They leave as soon as the money goes away. What we're talking about is jobs and opportunities over a long period of time. That's what the future is going to be. And that's where innovation comes in. The other side of this will be if you see them starting to invest in science and in innovation and research, which I haven't yet seen. If there's an infusion in universities, and that would be really intriguing for HBCUs to step up to the plate and say, hey, we're ready for this. We're ready to be part of this conversation at a different level to really develop the future and create the future. And then the other layer of this is different models of ownership. You can't just have huge utilities that make all this money and we're paying all these bills. No, everybody who lives in an area should get money from those green and renewable energies. And people are already creating those models and coming up with that stuff. So what this does is give us a green light to figure that out and to come to the table with those ideas. Wow. I feel like there's good soil to till, pun intended, for the Biden administration to think about where to go because we've essentially been stagnant and ignoring real environmental policies. Whenever Donald Trump would talk about coal, I was like, is it 1872? What year are we? Like, who's relying on coal as a source? It's like, let's all get in the wagon and go down to like the town square and talk about it. That's right. So as we try and think about the economic options we have as we move towards a new way of thinking about the environment, environmental policy and energy sources, we also are still in the midst of a global pandemic, even though folks are going to Bow Wow concerts, even though folks are at the Super Bowl partying in the streets, as though we don't have strains of a virus affecting our communities, large and small, across all 50 states. As someone who I know in the past, you've been very active as a practicing Muslim. Obviously, you can't be with your community during COVID. And I know that for so many people who go to churches and mosques and synagogues and temples across the country are really feeling this loss of real human connection and community. But is there anything that you're seeing in your community about vaccine education in the Muslim community, about the necessity to trust doctors and science in a particular 
particular way? And where do you think we're falling short and what we need to do? I was tracking very closely what was happening. New York City just opened up a vaccine site at the Yankee Stadium. One of the things that they did, unfortunately, is that they had Mariano Rivera, the famous pitcher for the Yankees, come in and do a lot of press and media. And basically their outreach strategy to the Black and Dominican community was like, hey, look, Mariano Rivera is here. Right. You should come and get your vaccine too. The end. <laughs> and I think that that really is a disservice to the community. And it says that you don't actually trust the existing neighborhoods and existing community organizations. The way that you get people and get outreach and get the vaccine into Black people and Black and brown folks is to work with the existing sites that are in the neighborhoods. Work with existing community groups. Work with community organizations that people actually already respect and know. And that means you fund them. It means you bring money, physical money, into neighborhoods. And the template for this was the census. We had the census. We already have an infrastructure across the country funded at the local, state, and federal level to execute the census. I think you take that existing infrastructure and you make it more robust. You need people going to people's doors, knocking on doors and saying, hey, we have the vaccine for you. You know where people are. That's the big piece. That's how you're going to get it out there. The reason why I say that is because you get people that they trust coming to you. It's not some random doctor from some other place coming to you. It's someone that you actually know. And I'll say this about the Muslim community, particularly Black Muslims are extremely skeptical about lots of things. We're some of the originators of a lot of conspiracy <laughs> theories, but there's a lot of careful, deep knowledge and communication that's happening because they're also very rational, logical people. You have to follow things in a certain way. And that message is getting out there. You don't hear a lot of super spreader events happening at mosques around the country. We're not the ones gathering. We get it. We understand. So you do have a lot of folks that are ready to do this. They're ready to be involved and they're ready to get their shot. Well, Ibrahim, I am so appreciative of you. What's next for you? Well, my good friend Ibrahim Hassan just dropped a book called Love is Why. You can go to loveiswhy.us. It's a book of images. It's sort of a love letter to Black America from him. He's Palestinian. I have some poetry in it. If you buy the book, it's going to support a local school and help get them some laptops. So it's loveiswhy.us. You should definitely check that out. Thank you, Ibrahim, so much for joining us on What's In It For Us podcast today as our guest host. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you very much, Chrissy. So hopefully you all will continue to think about what we've discussed and always remember what's in it for us. Thank you for listening to What's In It For Us. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to podcasts at thegrio.com. The What's In It For Us podcast is brought to you by The Grio, an executive produced by Kevin Y. Brown and produced by Abdul Kadoos.